0: If you have a Bible with you, uh, open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or you can follow along in the bulletin. We've been studying the Gospel of John since September of last year. We're going to take a break this week and look at what Paul talks about as the resurrection of Christ. So turn there, 1 Corinthians 15. The question that was asked to me... ...was something that I had memorized. But at that moment... ...it was on the tip of my tongue. Everyone was looking at me. Come on, you know this, you know this. The question was this. Who was John the Baptist's mother? I'm in seminary and I'm looking around... ...and everyone is looking at me like I'm supposed to know this. But I didn't know it. I didn't know the answer, but I should have. And then at the end, my professor says, what is the name of the woman that you just married? (laughs) Oh, yeah, her name is Elizabeth. I know that's a small thing, but at that moment, I felt really silly. I felt like I should know the answer, but I didn't. I wonder, as we think about the topic of Easter, as we think about Christianity, as we think about the resurrection... If many of us here today are wondering, like, I know I'm supposed to know the answer and like why this is a big deal and and maybe it has something to do with Easter eggs and Easter egg hunts and, you know, I don't know, Jesus, but I kind of feel silly not knowing the answer. I don't know. I want you to know that we're really, really glad you're here and we hope that you keep coming back because you're always welcome here. In this letter that Paul is writing to a a real church in a a city called Corinth. Paul is writing this letter to a group of people. Who um, This letter is only 20 years after the life of Jesus. People would have heard of Jesus. Maybe some of those eyewitnesses would have still been around. Keep that in mind. But secondly... The guy that wrote, wrote this letter to the little church in Corinth, he was no friend of Christianity. He was actually trying to snuff out Christianity. And then Jesus met him and everything changed. Keep those two features in the back of your mind as we consider 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to begin in verse 15. Excuse me, verse 16. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep... When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Will you please pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we believe that when you send your Holy Spirit, who is fully God, into this place and into our hearts, that it's like a flashlight that opens up our hearts and our minds to actually understand what these words mean. And you say that apart from that Holy Spirit, we really don't understand very much. So we need that Holy Spirit to come to open our hearts and open our minds, maybe even for some of us, for the very first time. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the opportunities that I had when I was living in St. Louis in grad school, I was single. Um, I had to figure out how I was going to make ends meet. And I had an opportunity to serve as a waiter um, at a really interesting, really neat restaurant uh, in St. Louis. I had a chance to wait on some really interesting people. Stan the Man Musle, Mark McGuire, the owner of the Rams, the, owner, the owners of Anheuser-Busch... And a lot of really interesting people that, frankly, I'll never forget. And one of the things that was unique about that time there is, um, to my knowledge, I was the only person at that restaurant amongst the wait staff who would have called themselves a believer. But not just that, I was the only one who was, in their words, training to be a priest. And I said, yes, (laughs) something like that. Yes, I'm in grad school training to be a clergy. And I got to know my fellow wait staff, really, really, really well. I would spend a lot of time with them after our shifts into the wee hours of the morning, getting to know them, hearing their story, what makes them tick, having an opportunity to share a little bit about my story. And one of the guys in particular, I remember uh, that it was a Saturday night and the next morning was Sunday morning, Easter Sunday. We had just worked a really long shift, really long night, and I was giving my friend a ride home and he was in rare form. He had a lot of thoughts on his mind and we passed one of those billboards that meant... Perhaps you've seen on the side of the highway, and it simply says in black and white letters, Jesus saves. And that's it. And that billboard just set my friend off. He said, Jesus saves from what? What is the point of that? Who are these people? What does that even mean? And he just went on and on. And another thing about Jesus this, this, this. He had so many questions, so many thoughts. We had a a wonderful conversation. But I think my friend is actually asking a really important question. So what? Jesus saves, so what? Jesus allegedly was raised from the dead. So what? That's really the question that I want us to zero in on and focus this morning. There's so much that could be said. Can we trust the Gospels? Who was Jesus? Was he a real person? Look... If you try to do everything, you do nothing. We're going to focus in on one question. So the resurrection happened, so what? And Paul actually answers that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know, earlier in this life, as I mentioned, Paul viewed Jesus as a heretic. Not like a fake heretic or like a metaphor heretic. He really was so committed to snuffing out Christianity that he was on his way killing Christians. He really believed that Jesus was leading people astray and he was willing to take people's lives to prove it. What changed for the Apostle Paul? What happened to him? He met Jesus. He had a personal encounter with Jesus and it changed everything. Paul is arguing in this passage. He was a brilliant Harvard trained thinker, if you will. He was trained under this guy named Gamaliel. Very thoughtful, very uh, very knowledgeable. He's arguing that the resurrection of Jesus is everything. If it didn't happen, then we're basically wasting our time. He argues it's the whole thing. And this passage has a unique way of talking about the resurrection of Jesus that I want to share with you. I think this is absolutely fascinating. There's a lot of ways of talking about the resurrection. Paul chooses to talk about the resurrection using an agricultural term. Look at, look, look at 1 Corinthians 15. See if you can find it. What's the agricultural term? He calls the resurrection of Christ the first fruits. Now, what in the world is first fruits, Justin? What are you talking about? It's actually an Old Testament term. You find it in Exodus 23, Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 18, Nehemiah chapter 10. My point is, it's all over the place. It's not a one-off deal. It's all over the Old Testament. It was a special feast... And there's this book in the um, Old Testament. It's the fifth book of what's called the Torah called Deuteronomy. Think about Deuteronomy as like a summary book to remind God's people as they're going into the promised land, hey, don't forget this stuff. This stuff is really important about who God is and who you are. Here's the summary. Here's a review of who God is. Here's a review of his promises in case you forget. So if you ever read Deuteronomy and Exodus, you're going to be like, These things are totally the same. They're talking about the same thing. Exactly. Deuteronomy is a review. In Deuteronomy 26, God gives instructions, a review for his people... ...about when they enter into the promised land. He says this. When you have your land, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the first fruits of your crops. Not metaphorical crops, but real crops that grow in the ground. Bring your grapes, bring your olives... Bring whatever you have, your grain, and then come into the temple, present them to the priest, and declare, I'm in the promised land. Okay, that's weird, Justin. Why are you talking about this? Why would God demand that, and what in the world does it have to do with Jesus? Why would fruits be a way to explain the resurrection? It's because, here's, here's the first point for those who are our note-takers. First fruits are evidences. First fruits are evidences. Imagine standing before that priest... You finally arrive in the promised land. You have your basket full of tons of grapes and olives. What becomes tangible to you at that moment as you're standing before the priest? Well, because you know the Old Testament really well, you're like, I remember that promise that God made to Abram a really long time ago in Genesis chapter 12. He said, I'm going to make a nation of you. I'm going to give you lots and lots and lots of people. And I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to provide for you. So then Abraham has a, has a child named Isaac. Is, is now going to be the time? We're going to get our land? Nope. And then Isaac has a son. His name is Jacob. Oh, okay, now is the time. Are we going to get our land? Nope. And then Joseph? Well, man, there's tons of these, uh, these tribes of Israel. Surely now? Nope. Then God carries his people off, and they're enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. Is God going to finally give us our land? Is he going to keep his promise? Has God forgotten about us? Will God provide a people? Will God give us a land? And then they're living in the wilderness for years and years and years. And God is providing. What becomes palpable? What becomes real? What becomes reality and genuineness at that moment as you're standing before the priest with your basket full of olives and full of grapes? Holy cow. God has actually kept his word. He didn't forget about us. Look in this basket. We're here. We're in the promised land. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. It becomes true. You can take it to the bank. How true is this promise keeping God? Put your hands in this basket. Smell the grapes. Taste the grapes. The fruit ...is an evidence. It's not wishful thinking. It's not a metaphor. It's not a figure of speech. He keeps his word. Now look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 15... ...which is the passage that we're really looking at. The Bible pushes you... ...and it pushes me... ...not to wishful thinking, metaphorical ideas about religion... ...but it pushes us to realism... Listen to verse 15 through 19 or 16 through 19 again. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Did you catch what Paul's saying? You should be pitied if Jesus did not actually physically... Arise from the dead. You're actually misrepresenting God, verse 15, if this is not true. That doesn't sound like wishful thinking. If you're thinking about Christianity, you've got to see evidences are a critical reality. Are we believing in a fairy tale about a resurrected man? Either Jesus is divine or he is not. You see on the cover of of your bulletin, there's a, a quote by a really thoughtful pastor in New York City named Timothy Keller... And I think he sums it up well in his book, Reason for God, which I would commend to you. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. I think that's a significant idea and a way of thinking about this. If the resurrection never happened, then the whole thing falls apart. But then look at verse 20 in 1 Corinthians 15. But he has been raised. How does Paul know that Jesus was raised from the dead? How does he know that? Well, if you have your device with you or if you have your uh, scriptures with you, look earlier in chapter 15. Look at this for, for a second. Verse 3. Listen to what, how Paul builds his argument. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which that's another term for Peter, and then he appeared to the twelve disciples, and then he appeared to, catch this, more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Remember, 20-year gap between 1 Corinthians And the life of Christ, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one time untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's the Apostle Paul. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Did you catch the evidences that Paul is saying? "...in accordance with the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, he appeared to 500 brothers, including Peter, including the 12 disciples, including James." So what is Paul saying about Jesus and the first fruits of the resurrection? Evidences matter. And it's always been the case of God keeping his promises. It's not wishful thinking. It's not a figure of speech. It's that when God says that you can trust his word... You can take it all the way to the bank. I remember when I was leaving high school. And left my Christian high school. And I left my youth group. And all those sort of ways that I grew up. I remember meeting and building friendships in college. With friends from other religions. From other countries. From other backgrounds. And these relationships ended up being very, very valuable to me. Many of them, I looked at their life, and they were far more patient. They were far more compassionate, far more generous. Frankly, they were a lot harder worker in the classroom than me. But I looked at their lives, and I thought to myself, well, I'm in America, and I grew up going to this Christian school, and I grew up going to this evangelical church, How do I know all this Christianity stuff is really true? I mean, what if I grew up in India? What if I grew up in Iraq? What if I grew up in North Korea? Now look, time does not allow me to get into all of the well-reasoned arguments that believers and unbelievers alike uh, respond to the issue of cultural pluralism. But I do want to just simply give you one hook to think about, one thing to hang your thoughts on. Christianity's argument to the world, and it's been the same for thousands of years, is it all goes back to the resurrection. What are you going to do with the resurrection? And that's a question for all of us here this morning. In a letter 20 years later than the life of Christ, Paul is saying, the most unlikely author you can imagine... Hey, they found the body of Jesus. You know, there's a lot of National Geographic movies. You know, where did the body of Jesus go? Well, they found the body of Jesus. And a whole bunch of people saw him. And Christianity's argument is it was very public and it was over 500 people. And those eyewitnesses could have been fact-checked. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people saw Jesus resurrected. And then they also saw Jesus ascend to the Father... This is real hope based upon real evidences. So when Paul says, throughout all of his letters, you are a new creation in Christ. The old is past, the new has come. You have been justified before a holy God. You have received His righteousness and His purity. He has received your sin and death. You have been raised to a living hope. You have been adopted into God's family purely based upon God's grace, not because of your ethnicity or your socioeconomic background, or whether you're a man or a woman or your education levels. It is purely God's grace. Those promises and those truth statements from the Scripture are founded on the fact that God is a promise-keeping God that you can take his word to the bank. I realize that's an argument, and I'm making a case for that. Wrestle with that. And if you want to grab coffee and talk more about it, let's do it. Point two. Don't worry, there's only two points this time. Everybody, sigh of relief. Justin, look at the time. Only two points today. First fruits are also just the beginning. So first fruits are evidences, not wishful thinking, But also first fruits are just the beginning. As the idea, uh, the the concept is developed, a first fruit is the beginning of the harvest that you dedicate to God. But it's like a foreshadowing. It's like a trailer in the movie theater of, but look what's coming. There's a harvest coming and this is just the beginning. First fruits are just the beginning. Let's go back to our, our guy in the temple in Deuteronomy 26. He's He's landed in the promised land. He's got his basket full of all kinds of grapes and olives and all kinds of good stuff. His family is in tow. Was this guy the only guy in line that day? That's a stupid question, Justin. Why are you asking that? No, you've got to think about that. Thousands of people were in line with him. Those promises weren't just for him and his family. Thousands and thousands of people entered the promise and lots of people standing in line with their figs and their grapes, dedicating them to the God and saying, look, God made good on his promise. He came through in the clutch. It wasn't just a bunch of idle talk, a bunch of pie in the sky junk. It's real. What is this showing us? The first fruits are just the beginning. Look at Leviticus chapter 26. Turn there quickly or you can write it down in your notes. I'm going to read it. Verse three, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commands and do them, then I will give you your rains in your season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Okay, why are you reading that to us, Justin? What God does really does affect individuals. We've talked about Jesus knows you by name, he knows his sheep. He calls you by name. You are engraven on the heart of God. You get to call him your father. And salvation is so much bigger than just us. God's promises are so much bigger than just me and God. They're not less, but they're so much bigger. God's promises from the Bible are so much bigger, friends, than individual souls avoiding hell. 1 Corinthians 15, look at verses 21 to 22 again. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What is he saying? Hey, church in Lexington. Hey, church in Corinth. Look at your Bible and go all the way back to the very beginning. when there was this guy named Adam. In Genesis, as well as 1 Corinthians and Jesus' words, treat Adam as a real human being, a historic figure, not a metaphor, not a figure of speech. And Paul says to the church in Corinth, think back to Adam and the disobedience that was the result of his life. We're talking death on every level. When Adam disobeyed, everything died. Everything started falling apart. Disintegration On every level, God, man, family, relationships, everything. But before that, the world was paradise. All over the world, there was this this term called shalom or peace. Now, shalom, I love the band The Eagles, but when you think about shalom, don't think about the song Peaceful, Easy Feelings. Biblical peace is not just about peaceful feelings. But also, I don't want you to simply think about a ceasefire and the absence of war, which would be a great thing. But the biblical idea of shalom is so much bigger than that. Think about it as this, the way things ought to be on every level. When Adam sinned, he ruined everything for everyone. No more shalom. Everything started falling apart. Death, disease, decay, war, famine, abuse, you name it. And some of you are thinking, hey, 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 preacher dude, Last time I checked, I didn't vote for Adam to represent me. Well, this this is where our American individualism can actually blind us from taking the Bible on its own terms. This is a tough one. Paul does not persuade us to this point, he simply states it as a fact Adam is humanity's representative. And that's really bad news because he messed up everything for all of us, and this is the world that we're living in. It's a royal mess. But, you know, there's also good news. If you look at verses 23 through 26, the resurrection of Christ is the first fruits. God has kept his word. You can take him at his word. But is that good news simply that Jesus came so you don't have to go to hell? I hope there's more to that. Is the good news simply that you're forgiven and you're pure and that you're righteous before God? Yes, that's true. You were getting closer, but it's so much bigger. That's still too narrowly focused on ourselves. Friends, look at our world. I mean, when we walk into this room, please don't check your brain at the door and check your problems at the door. We have a harsh and brutal and devastating world that all of us are living in. And if you're not going through a season right now of of those challenges and depression and and being overwhelmed, praise the Lord. But it could be coming. Have you seen the drone footage in the Ukraine? It's absolutely devastating. Have you seen the living conditions for many of the children in Rockbridge County? It's absolutely gut-wrenching. Have you heard the stories of human trafficking right here at the intersection of 64 and 81 in Rockbridge County? Did you know that? It's devastating, human slavery? Have you heard of the spiritual abuse that is taking place in American evangelical churches around the country? Have you heard of this? It is absolutely devastating and it grieves the Holy Spirit. Don't you hope that God is going to do something about this devastation? Even if you don't believe in Jesus, what's your your game plan? How do you think things are going to get better? Don't you see that in Christianity that our hope is bigger than just avoiding hell? It's about a God that has pledged to enter into this. That resurrection is just the beginning. It's the first fruits. And that we have a resurrection to come. That actually creation is going to be resurrected. The new heavens and the new earth. The resurrection is Christ taking death. And poverty and abuse and depression and loneliness. And turning it and saying, you have no power here. Do you know when the Feast of the First Fruits was celebrated? I learned this this week. The day after the Sabbath during the week of Passover. That's today. Today. Yesterday was the day of rest, the day of Sabbath. It is all significant. Every detail matters. Today is that day. Christ's resurrection is the first fruit of our resurrection and a new life, and a new heaven, and a new earth. I want to just close by uh, telling you a story. I wonder if any of you have these kind of trips or relationships that you have a conversation you'll never forget them. They're just sort of etched into your memory. I had one of those. There's um, a man that's like a father figure to me uh, taught me how to fly fish. We were at this beautiful place in Montana and um, there was a lot of tall grass behind me. I'm a lefty. And um, I spent most of the afternoon picking out my fly out of the tall grass. And he was, you know, right next to me, where the piano is here, just patiently watching. And he was there for me, and he said, hey, hey, Justin, why why don't you let me take care of it for you? He'd go over there, and he'd go into the tall grass, he'd pick it out, he'd come over, and he'd patiently, graciously say, all right, Justin, let's be a little bit more rhythmic with our uh, cast, very gentle, for hours. And then I got it hung up on a rock in the river, yanked the fly off. Okay, let's try that again. Why don't you let me take care of it? And then I really got hung up and my line looked like a tangled mess. And he said again, over and over and over again, why don't you let me take care of it for you? This morning, I don't know what you've gone through in your whole life or what you've gone through this week or this month. But Jesus comes to you and he simply gives you the invitation Will you just let me take care of it? The financial burdens, the spiritual burdens, the hurt, the loneliness, the questions that you have, the fear of being known, the challenges intellectually, what's happened to you, what you've done to others. He simply is coming to you and he says, Will you let me take care of it? But you have to come with open hands. You have to hand it over. And I know for some of you here, you're like, I'm a Christian. But just like four or five times I had to keep handing Bowman my line. That's kind of the Christian life. Is continuing to surrender our lives to him. And the messes that we've made. And he is inviting you today. Will you let me take care of it for you? I think as an action step for some of you here this morning, you need to seriously wrestle with the claim. Is the resurrection really the linchpin? Is that really the foundation? Do I really believe that there was a historic bodily resurrection? Maybe that's the next action step. Maybe you need to pick up a book by Tim Keller called Making Sense of God or Reason for God and commit to reading it and to really studying it because Christianity is built on that foundation. Others of you here this morning, you are in town and maybe you have a church home in D.C. or Waynesboro or wherever you live. But I want to invite you as a minister of the gospel. Are you known there? Are you willing to plug in and actually enter into a journey at that church wherever you live and allow yourself to be known? Jump into community. Others of you here, you are from Rockbridge County and you don't have a church home. We would be honored for you to join us on this journey. Wherever you are with your questions and your doubts. And thirdly and lastly, an action for those of us that want to follow Christ. And you see the mess all too clearly in your family, in your own soul, in your businesses, in your community. I want to give you great hope. The great hope for change and growth is that Christ was raised from the dead. That there is resurrection power to fight against temptation, to fight against the lies. I I even shared with someone this morning, y'all, this week I got blindsided on Saturday by discouragement, by fear, by by doubt, and it came out of left field. And And a good friend reminded me, oh, Justin, they don't want you, the evil one does not want you to talk about the hope of the resurrection. When we have doubts, when we have fears, bring them to the Lord in prayer. And because of the resurrection of Christ, real change is available. Jesus invites you. How about you let me take care of it wherever you are? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith. And I pray, Lord, that all of my friends here today, with their questions and their hurts and their their doubts and and their frustrations, would know that you're big enough to handle them, that we would not hide in entertainment and busyness and work, but that we would slow down and let you take care of us.